And one of the really hard things about it was that having to stay on edge in case it's 99% boredom, but you've got to be ready for that 1% that's not. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you're, you're going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top like of us. Like she did say, you've changed. The soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Today's veteran conversation is a Skype call between Angus Horden and Vietnam veteran John Wells. I'm Angus Horden, and I'm speaking today with John Wells. John, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Very welcome, Angus. John, let's talk about your family first. So do you have any military history or tradition in the family of service? No, not since the Great War, Angus. My grandmother had four brothers who went to the Great War. Two of them were killed and one came home badly hurt. Three of them on Gallipoli at the same time, strangely enough. But in the Second World War, my father had had a shotgun accident sometime earlier and had lost an eye, so he was unable to enlist. And no one else, much of my family, did for some reason. John, I can appreciate you growing up from your grandmother's stories and four boys from part of the family and served at Gallipoli and to lose two and, and worse to have one come home maimed from it. I mean, three out of four in one family is devastating. You must have had that memory with you all your life. Look, I did. And one of the, I mean, I grew up in a time when people did sit down and tell family stories. We didn't have television and that sort of thing. Part of it was grandma was that one of her brothers just vanished at Villepretona and they don't know whether he was buried in a shell burst or blown to pieces by one or whatever, but they just know that he started out and didn't complete it so that he was always a, a mystery. And I think there's a special pain in that. Do you have any siblings? I had eight brothers. I've still got six of them. Wow, it's a big family. It was. Any others served there? Yes, my brother Simon went up to Vietnam after I came home. Then my brother Andrew followed him up. And my brother David was about to go when, when it was all called off. And Malcolm had been in the Air Force for quite a few years. What hobbies did you have, John, when you were a child? Oh, I think I did all the normal things like stamp collecting and that sort of thing. But I was... Very, very heavily then into the, the Boy Scouts, and I, I did a lot of bushwalking. I did a hell of a lot of shooting. Where did you grow up, John? I grew up on a dairy farm at Longworry, about 60k east of Melbourne. So you're a country boy, and you've got all these brothers. I mean, I can imagine you would have had a hell of a time with them. We had adventure after adventure after adventure. We had fights among ourselves, but if there was any external threat, we were very much unified. When Vietnam starts, how old were you? I was, I think, about 19 or 20, something. It's difficult with that war to say when it actually started. We, we started to get involved about 62, I think. And in 62, I was 17. More to your involvement in the war, how were you drawn into Vietnam? Well, I'm, I'm now going to say something that's going to sound, make me sound unbelievably naive. Remember that I'm, I'm going back here to the 60s, the early 60s, 
And we believe that we could change the world and make it a better place. We believe that the power of the common man was was everything if it was if it was brought to bear on a problem. And I really believe that we were going to Vietnam to stabilize the country, to stop the conflict and then to let the people make a choice and that if they chose to be communist then so be it. It would be a democratic choice that took them there. I thought it was the right thing to do. And I also thought, if if I may go just for a second, I really thought that if your country's in a fight then you're in the fight. Yeah, well, you're, you're really old school, aren't you? Because uh, <laughs> I was then. Yeah, no, but but I mean, you're not the first person to hold such views, and indeed, everyone that went off to the Boer War, the First World War, and certainly the Second World War, certainly from this country, all felt the same that we were under threat one way or the other. Well, can I make the point there, there too, Angus? That we need to remember that this is the nation of the volunteer. So it's not just in war, but in floods and fires and everything else, uh, just in community living, there are always people putting up their hands to, to go to that extra yard. And certainly, John, being a country boy, well, you know, country people are notorious for their generosity and kindness. So how did you feel about going to war? Oh, it was a complex, a, a large number of, of feelings. There was a, a certain amount of fear in it, believe it or not, but there was also a huge sense of adventure and excitement. When I first went into the army, I was surprised to find there was a whole big green machine that was not even remotely interested in my opinion. Mm. And uh, it took me, there was some resentment in the first few weeks. Then there was a, a determination that they weren't going to beat me. And in the end, there was a pride in um, in the things I could do. I found out a hell of a lot about myself in those those, well, those first six months, say, of, of training. And uh, I developed a great deal of pride, a great deal of self-respect. And I think respect for others tends to rest on self-respect in a strange way. John, were you a volunteer or a, a NASHO? We have to be clear that there's a distinction. I was both. I was a volunteer, but I volunteered under the National Service Scheme so that I was in the regular army supplement, not in the regular army. So it was totally of your call to go, and that was more in line with your idealistic spirit, as you were saying. Well, yes, I suppose it was idealistic too, but that's, that's a word you have to be careful about these days. No, but I volunteered, and, and my three brothers volunteered as well. We, we were national servicemen, but we weren't conscripts. So training, was that at Pakapanyal? Pakapanyal initially, then at the School of Artillery in Sydney, and then in Queensland, based at Wakehold near Ipswich, but going up to Shoalwater Bay and Tincan Bay and places like that. So you progressively move further north all the time. Yes. (laughs) You know, sarcastically acclimatising, I suppose you could think. And always on long, slow trains. Yes. Long, slow, overcrowded trains. (laughs) Let's go to your first bit of training. So you, the first time that you actually, I mean, was Pakapanyal the first time you did boot camp? Yes. And what time of the year we're talking? April. So it's starting to get cold, although you are from the south anyway but I can remember how bitter Pakapanyal can be in, in the winter. It was. <laughs> and I imagine they were dishing out the hardest stuff to you to try and, you know, humble you pretty quickly. There seemed to be a fair bit of that, and I did rise to that bait initially. Yeah, it was about toughening us up a bit. It was about sorting us out, I think, to some extent too. Were you fortunate to go in with your brothers, or, or how did that work out? No, with the brothers, there's more or less two years gap between each of us. So, um, so I was out when Andrew, when Simon went in, and um, 
he was out when Andrew went in. You do all this training. I mean, did you enjoy the training? I know it's very physical and it's very hard. What were your experiences with that? Look, it was very hard. I disliked intensely the fact that some of the NCOs at the time set out almost to demean us, not quite to break us, but to um, to make us think a bit less of ourselves with the view, I suppose, of building us up. But after a while, you, you rose above that and you started to feel a sense of pride in your own ability to meet the challenges. And I think you're heartened by the fact that the guys who are with you, who you bond with, are going through the same shit with these guys. Exactly. Your strength comes from your bonding with them. In fact, they're the guys you're actually fighting for at the end of the day. You know, that that's absolutely the truth. And when you say fighting for, not just overseas, but even in training, they're the guys you would reach down to, to help up and, and they're the guys who would reach down to help you up. And that, that just became a part of the totality of the whole thing. It was You were really among great mates. And to this day, I still am. Let's go to Vietnam. It's 1967. You're a forward observer signaller. Tell us what that role is. Uh, basically, you walk around with the infantry directing artillery, registering targets and adjusting onto the, the target. For the enemy, you're a pretty disliked person because you're actually the guy that brings down all hell on them. So you're, you're quite a target, hey? Look, we were. And, and the funny thing is that the Viet Cong really became aware very quickly that against Australian forces, artillery was swift and accurate. We had an incredibly disciplined artillery force compared with some others. Yeah, and these are these 105mm howitzers? Yes. Yeah, I mean, they, they could bring down all hell if you could pinpoint it. It's quite a big bomb if you put it exactly where you want it. As Delta Company would concur with you at Long Tan, it saved their bacon, and in many scraps that our forces came upon, it was the artillery, and most importantly, the communication of the correct fire coordinates that made the artillery so effective. Absolutely, and the response times. My battery twice had 36 rounds in the air at once, which is... Phenomenal. It is. And as you know, the Army life is... 23 and a half hours of doing absolutely nothing and then five minutes of all hell. Yes. (laughs) And then in the all hell, your howitzers, when they're called upon to bring down all hell on the enemy, it's so flat out. And I've heard stories about your howitzers that were ruined because they were firing so much artillery at the enemy in such a short period of time that they literally burnt out the barrels. Yeah, there were all sorts of things happened. Just the consistent concussion in the gun would damage the dial sights and that sort of thing. So, that, although the, the M282 is a very tough howitzer, they do need constant care and attention if you want to keep them accurate. And what sort of range? How far forward could they lob a shell with accuracy? We could go out to 11 kilometres, but for accuracy, you have what you call a beaten zone where you you allow a certain percentage will fall long or short. And that gets greater as your range gets greater. So we preferred not to operate beyond about six kilometres. We flew up to Bunkow in a, an Air Force Hercules and, and we got out on the airfield and found all sorts of people in black pyjamas and conical hats working on the airstrip. And of course, we'd been told that these were the enemy, so we were a little bit dodgy about that. It all seemed a bit strange. Then a caribou up to Nui Dat. We had a, a short time then in what's called general support where we did basically... Pretty safe stuff for the most part for about four weeks where you get the feel for the country and so on. And we did our patrols. Instead of going out with the infantry battalion, we went with the reinforcement unit and a couple of Vietnamese units and that sort of thing to direct their artillery. And then we were switched to 22, to two battalion, I'm sorry, in, in direct support. And then we were in the bush for real. 
And how did you find the jungle? Very scary, very scary. Very hard stuff to get around in in the daytime. Quite terrifying at night because you were sometimes really face to face with it and there were things that walked around in the jungle like crabs and scorpions and they made noises and you didn't quite know what was making the noise. But also, we were, we were only in jungle at times. We were out in paddy areas and rubber plantations a lot of the time. But John, you know, when you say at night time, it's the blackest night, even something like a lizard running across a bed of leaves would set you off. Absolutely. Tell us about the weather. I mean, the incessant rain, then the incredible heat. I missed the worst of the wet. I was there mostly in the dry half of the year. I was saying to someone the other day that I can't understand why if we only got to wash when we got back to Nui Dat, why we didn't all stink. But I assume it's because we basically all smelt the same. That was part of it, the, the difficulty of hygiene. If you came to a creek, you were happy to walk through it, clothes and all, rather than over it because you gave yourself a bit of a rinse. I remember we found a, 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 an old villa house of some substance that had been blown away so there's only the base left and underneath that was a huge water system so we climbed down through some of the holes that had been blown in the concrete slab and the whole battalion in the course of the day literally had a bath it was it was quite bizarre we actually halted the operation in a sense while people guarded the the site and, and everybody got in and had a good tub up it's funny how it's those really small things that make all the difference, like being clean? Yes, well, I mean, our cook, Sergeant Cook back at camp, would get the bread mix, which most cooks didn't use because you'd buy bread from the Vietnamese much more easily than making your own. But he would make up bread and he'd send out on he'd send out on a helicopter to us from time to time boxes of salad rolls. And to get in the bush and get some fresh bread with fresh vegetables in it was a luxury beyond belief. And we did a great deal of protocol work or political work, diplomatic work, by giving them to our infantry friends. Out of interest, did you ever see the salvos up there? We did. I disapprove of some things about the salvos, but I donate to the salvos because I can still remember cordoning a village one uh, very early one morning. We moved in when it was still pitch dark. It was probably about four o'clock in the morning. Cordoned the village off and then did a search and destroy for weapons and so forth. And it was all very, very tactical. We were in quite a hot area. And when we finished and started to move out of the village, there was the sunny man with his Land Rover and his urn of hot coffee and tea. And, of course, he, he didn't have any weapon or support of any kind at all. And I've, I've always been struck by that image of, of turning it, coming up over the hill and there's a bloke saying, do you want a coffee? And how good did that coffee taste, hey? Excellent, excellent. <laughs> and a Salvo guy would be going in his Land Rover no armed escort. How brave were those guys? Because the VC wouldn't have taken any pity on them. Oh, no, they, they had no rules about that sort of thing at all. And, and these guys would have been targets as much as anybody. So, yeah, I have a, great, a huge respect for that. Did you deal much with the locals up there? As much as I could. And that wasn't always that easy. Unlike the Americans, we had a very strict rule that we didn't have Vietnamese walking around in our camps. Um, even the interpreters at Nui Dat were in a separate compound of their own because we didn't want the word getting back about where our machine guns were or where our tracks were or whatever else. But you did get the chance occasionally to go down to Bung Tao on a beach party. I did have a night's leave, about 36 hours of leave on one occasion I was down in Bung Tao. And we occasionally got down to Berea with a what we call a laundry party. You'd, you'd take close down to the laundry there and bring back the clean ones. And, of course, there was always everybody wanted to get on to that, so you didn't always get on because they only let a certain number go. 
And there you would try to get, try to learn a couple of words of the language and find out what you could about the country. The problem that you had in Vietnam is the people you would see in the village could equally be the VC that you would fight the next day. The Australians routinely took what would appear to us as a sensible decision not to have locals in our camp for exactly the reason you said. Unlike the Americans, who would tend to do things very different to us across many fields. We actually did have some quite strong rules of engagement about protecting the locals. We had areas that were what we called free fire zones, and in those, the local Vietnamese knew that if they were there at any time, they were a target. Then you had curfew zones where they weren't allowed to be out after five o'clock at night, and you had zones where you just couldn't shoot at all. And these rules of engagement were well policed. I know a bloke who used a Land Rover to knock down a Vietnamese house because he was really annoyed with something, and he went to jail for it. Let's go back to you in the field. Can you talk about how you as an Australian with your guys would patrol, say, compared to the Americans? Because there's a big difference here. Look, there is a big difference, but with one qualification. The Americans really had about three different armies. They had some of their special forces that were genuinely frighteningly good. And I had an experience where we were sending it, we were, went out with a dog team. Uh, to chase up a couple of blood trails. And two American Special Forces guys stood up out of grass that was about a foot long, and I'd had no idea they were there until I was within about 50 metres of them. They were top-flight guys. And, sorry, a blood trail is? Wounded Viet Cong. And we, we had dog teams that could follow those trails. And strangely enough, or perhaps not strangely, I hope not strangely, quite often that resulted in a wounded Viet Cong being brought back and given all the medical treatment in the world. The bulk of their army it was possible to be in Vietnam in the American Army six weeks after enlistment. Um, that wouldn't be a frontline job, but you you could be in country in six weeks. Uh, it was six months for us, and it was a very very intensive six months minimum. So we were much better trained. But in the bush, some of the units were people you just didn't want to work with. You, you stayed away from them as much as you could. The focus was moving through the bush stealthily quietly, yes. and as you say, it's taking a long time even to get forward 100 yards. Sometimes, yes, yes. Whilst the Americans would just bush bash through, smoking. Look, they were. They were. Even our most junior officers were pretty well grounded by the time they got in country. And the Army is also quite ruthless about its officers in the sense that if you're not up to it, you don't stay there very long. You finish up counting blankets somewhere. Tell us about your corporals and sergeants. Well, I can, I can tell you that the corporals and the sergeants and non-commissioned officers in the Army had to learn, because of national service, that they needed to lead, not just command, because national service would say, some of them would say, why? And that wasn't normal in the Army, and it, it actually affected a huge increase in the efficiency of, of the Army. But, again, they were weeded out if they weren't much good and they finished up in areas where they couldn't do much harm. The NCOs we had in the scrub uh, drove us hard but drove themselves just as hard so there was a, a respect and even in the end and I'm not far from going back up to Brisbane to revisit my old sergeant who's now aiming a bit, there's almost a form of love there. Uh, they're, they're sort of father figures, they're, they're mates it's a strange blend of roles but we had people, the, the NCOs we went with in my unit were all men that I, I admired still today. My unit was 140 at, at, at strength. That 140 changed from time to time as people went home in rotations and new people came in. 
but at strength was 146 artillery pieces, four observation parties out in the bush. And you're one of these observation parties out in the bush. How big is your observation party? There were six of us, uh, a major, a sergeant, a lance bombardier and three gunners. A small section of six guys going out there to observe where we're going to call fire. If you get caught, there's not a lot of things that six guys can do. Well, in a way there is, because these six guys can control six very big guns and they can bring the whole regiment in if they want to, which makes it 18 guns. And we also had the capacity to bring in aircraft. But you're also very worried about using aircraft because they tended to shoot first and ask later. When we were sometimes back at Nui Dat, you would get a flight of phantoms come over and say, uh, we have unexploded ordnance. Where would you like us to dump it? And we would pick somewhere as far away as we possibly could. Unless he's in a B-52. And they had an unbelievable accuracy to bomb with, unbelievable ability to bomb with pinpoint accuracy. It was just staggering how they could fire from Guam or come across from Thailand and put a bomb right on the button every time. Are there any other memorable moments that you've got from Vietnam concerning your unit or indeed other actions? Look, there are a couple that I, I don't enjoy revisiting. Yeah, there, look, there were quite a number of things. We had a, a chap who was, who was killed by shrapnel when some Viet Cong got in among our position, and he hadn't dug in because he was going out to Hong Kong on leave the next morning. And one of the things you did every night was dig yourself at least a little shell scrape, a little trench that you could lie in, you know, eight inches deep, eight inches wide sort of thing. And he hadn't done that, and he paid the biggest possible price for it. But we had lots of occasions that were even funny. I remember going through a rubber plantation one day where a deer came running down the line and almost as fast as the deer came the word, don't shoot that deer. <laughs> they all figured there'd be a deer hunter somewhere in the line and he, he wouldn't be able to resist. But no, the, look, there were things. I remember stopping at a fire support base called Giraffe, which at that stage was just a clearing on a slope and we had to surround it and clear it. And then um, the first night we had one strand of barbed wire around it and the Viet Cong probed us. And that was quite uh, quite a worrying night. They, they didn't press in any great numbers, but they were there. So that, again, it's one of those things where not a lot happens after the first half hour, but you've got to stay on edge till daylight. And one of the really hard things about it was that having to stay on edge in case, um, as you said earlier, it's 99% it's boredom, but you've got to be ready for that 1% that's not. Of sheer panic, yeah. Well, that's, you know, you don't panic at the time. You, you stay very cool, calm and collected at the time, and then you get the shakes afterwards. So were you in any engagements where the enemy got close enough to you that you had visual on them? Twice, yeah. What did you have, an SLR or, or an M16? or? No, I had an M16 because it was lighter. We carried so much stuff that every ounce you could save was worth saving. But remember that my job wasn't really to use my rifle. My job was to use my radio. You mentioned that you lost a mate to shrapnel. Were there any other of your mates that you lost? No. Really a friend of my brother's more than of mine, but a bloke that I knew well and liked a lot who was killed about 18 months after I came home. But that, that was all the personal loss that I suffered. That's interesting, too, that you get an incredible guilt when you come home and you hear of things like that because you're at home clean and shaved and showered and eating three good meals a day in comfort. And you really feel guilty about the fact that there's still blokes up there in the bush who are not. And you survived. Yeah. And how did your brothers fare in the war? Andrew came home. He had a fairly nasty war. He was in three battalion in Delta Company 3RA, and he had a great many contacts and came home with an absolute hatred and loathing of all things Asian. 
um, which he got over in a, a way that surprised me. The Dandenong RSL won Anzac Day about 2003 or so. He came out to the car park at the back and called to me across the car park. And then, just bear with me for a moment. This story has a little length to it. He called out right across the car park, Hey, what? You know all them little slope goop mates of yours? Because we had a lot of Vietnamese ex-servicemen with us in the club. And I shriveled. I thought, you know, that's not quite how I would have shouted it out across the car park, but still. And I said, what? And he said, they're good little buggers when you actually talk to them. And he had turned around from the bar with a couple of beers and bumped a Vietnamese guy and spilt the beers. The Vietnamese guy insisted on replacing them and then made Andrew sit down at their table and chat for a while. And that 20-minute chat ended his entire anti-Asian stance. Quite amazing. And he said, once you talk to them, he said, they, they did all the same things we did. And you think, well, exactly, you know. But Simon went up as a postal clerk, and you would think that that was a pretty safe and mundane job. But he actually had two incidents in a helicopter that was shot up and a personnel carrier that ran over a mine. So nobody was really entirely safe. Getting your letters from home was a big deal. Oh, look, it was fundamental. And the post he had to get through. So if you were in a forward unit, they would send him forward to deliver the mail and probably other supplies. So... uh... He, um, he, he could be put in harm's way. You wouldn't think so. No, you don't think so, but they could. And I don't think anyone who's not been there in those older days can understand how important your mail is. Yeah, well, it was your only real link with home. Every digger would have two or three letters in his pocket somewhere, and he would carry them for weeks. And he'd share them with you. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you would know in your unit what your mates families were up to and what their news was, because what else did you have to talk about? They were your family. The blokes you were with were your family, and and therefore their families were your families. You get through the war. When you come home from Vietnam, what happens? That's the crux of it, and that's the crux of it today. When you come home, you you step out through a a doorway that um, closes behind you and that you can never really quite reopen, and you move into a, a different world. It's not the world you were in in Vietnam, and it's not the world you were in before you went to Vietnam. It, it's a different world, and it is really, really hard at times to make that adjustment. My main problem was a sort of a guilt thing that I was home and the mates weren't. But we have other blokes who have real trouble with the fact that they lived an adrenaline-fueled life with all the adventure in the world, and suddenly they're sitting in an office, or worse still, suddenly they don't have a job at all. And that adjustment is fantastically difficult. It's also fantastically difficult for the authorities to deal with because it's it's such an individual thing. There are people who transition without much trouble at all, and I was one of them, but there are blokes who don't make the transition at all successfully. And we've still got people today whose lives, among my friends, we've still got people whose lives are still tied up in what happened back in 67, 68. I'm fairly lucky in that I've been able to move beyond that. I still have that those connections. I still do a lot of work with ex-servicemen, but I've had a, another life altogether. Some of them haven't. It's desperately hard for some folks to make the switch. In a way, you know, you, you're making a switch from a time when you think that you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof to a time when you're suddenly just ordinary like everybody else. And that, that can be hard to handle. And as you've testified, you found out that some of those guys weren't 10 feet tall and they weren't bulletproof. Now that comes as something of a shock to the system, I can tell you. It really does. At one level, you know that you're not. But at another level, you really do start to think that you are. And I mean, if you think of it, you're a young man, you've got an automatic weapon, you ride in helicopters, you get winched up and down, you climb ropes and walk for many, many more miles than you thought you could. And you're in this bunch of mates who are also doing it with you and, 
and there's a sort of an incredible closeness. It's it's really as, as different from civilian life as you can imagine. That sounds a superior thing to say, or patronising thing to say, and I don't mean it in that way at all, but you can't really put it into words. Are you glad that you served? Yes, I am extremely. And do you do anything with other veterans today? I do a great deal. I'm a, I was until a month or so ago a director of an organisation that houses veterans. I'm still a member of that. I'm the president of a very large RSL here in Victoria. Uh, I run my own unit association pretty much. And uh, we're running projects for younger veterans, all sorts of things. Involvement's still pretty strong because I'm retired. I've still got all my marbles. I've, um, I've got the time. I've got the money. I've got the support from my wife. Uh, I can put a bit back. And I came home with all my arms and legs and fingers and toes and in, in relatively sound mental condition. So I have something of an obligation to those who didn't. John, it appears to me you're living a very full life, but a day doesn't pass without you thinking about your mates you left behind and indeed those that have come home and are still fighting the war. That's true, that's true. And those who are battling things that have happened since the war. You know, civilian life itself is complex and brings its own dangers too. I must say it's been great talking with you today. It's very difficult for people to appreciate what you've been through unless they've been in those jungles, they've been with their mates who have then left us. But you've come back and you've buried yourself in really wonderful service where you're giving back to the community and indeed keeping the memory of your unit alive. And it's been our pleasure and honour to have you share your wonderful life story with us today here on Life on the Line. John, thank you once again for coming with us today. Thank you, Angus. I've appreciated the opportunity. Subscribe to Life on the Line and your podcast app of choice, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, TuneIn and Stitcher. And rate us five stars to help get these Australian stories of service to a wider audience. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can also check out our website and on there, subscribe to our newsletter. The site is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs> <laughs>